This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're especially pleased to have as our guest Dr. Paul Reeve, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Utah. Dr. Reeve will discuss Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, which is the title of his acclaimed history of the LDS priesthood and temple racial restrictions, a book that was published by Oxford University Press. I found Professor Reeve's presentation to be one of the very best and most informative of the many great podcasts we've had in this series, and I do highly commend it to you. And if you enjoy the podcast, I hope you'll consider visiting us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And maybe while there, consider a tax-deductible donation to Dialogue Foundation. The next voice you'll hear will be my introduction of Paul, at a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Paul Reeve is an associate professor of history at the University of Utah, where he has won a number of awards for teaching, so we know he's a good teacher. He also is an excellent writer, and his first book that dealt with the Southern Paiutes, the Miners, and Mormons in the latter part of the 19th century won the Mormon History Association's award for best first book. He today, of course, is going to speak to his most recent book that has received a great deal of acclaim, Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. Professor Reeve is married and has, is it five or six? Six. Six children, five of whom are teenagers between 13 and 17, and anyone (laughs) that can survive that deserves our admiration whether he wrote a book or not. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, I'll turn the time over to Paul. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for the invitation to be here. I appreciate the Miller-Eccles uh, invitation and it's an honor to be with you tonight and especially to talk to you about my book. We'll start off with just the subtitle for the book because I've been working on the research for the last seven years and grown accustomed to lots of blank stares and skeptical looks when I say race and the Mormon struggle for whiteness. Mormons are just white. Why would they need to struggle? Um, And so I get the skepticism. I invite the skepticism. I hope people are skeptical enough to actually read the book and uh, see for yourself if there's enough evidence to substantiate the subtitle. But let me kind of introduce you to uh, the evidence and where that comes from. And we'll start with just the image that I chose for the cover of the book. It says, 1904, Life Magazine. April 28, 1904, Life Magazine. And the title for this image that was published in Life Magazine is Mormon Elderberry, out with his six-year-olds who take after their mothers. (laughs) If you sort of uh, try to understand then what the artist is attempting to portray here, 1904, in several states in the nation, uh, two and three of these marriages would have been illegal, including in Utah. So Mormons are breaking the law, okay, 
also practicing polygamy, but darkening the white race and making it unfit for democracy is another suggestion bound up in this political cartoon. And we also need to situate this political cartoon within the context of what's going on in Mormon history. So the historians in the room are likely aware that Joseph F. Smith, who is then leader of Mormonism, has just returned from a withering six days on the United States Senate witness stand in the Reed Smoot hearings. Reed Smoot was a sitting LDS apostle, and the United States Senate, who was elected from Utah to represent Utah in the United States Senate, the United States Senate uh, was trying to decide if they would allow him to retain his Senate seat. And there's a three-year-long trial, and Mormonism goes through uh, its Reed Smoot Mormon moment, and it plays out in very public ways on the national stage, and this is just one example. Okay. So within 20 days of Joseph F. Smith returning from Washington, D.C., Life Magazine publishes this political cartoon, and I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to suggest that Mormon Elderberry is a caricature of Joseph F. Smith. So I see this as a moment of transition for Mormonism. This Life Magazine picture is attempting to trap Mormonism in a racially suspect past, at the same time that Mormonism is attempting to transition into a white and pure future. And let me explain what I mean. Joseph F. Smith on the 6th of April, 1904, at General Conference, issues what historians refer to as the Second Manifesto. First Manifesto was Wilford Woodruff saying, uh, we're going to comply with the law of the land and give up polygamy. Second Manifesto is... We really mean it this time. (laughs) And Joseph F. Smith puts teeth into the first manifesto by simply saying, anyone who takes future plural wives will be subject to excommunication. And that's the policy that uh, the, uh, the church pursues from 1904 to the present. So you have to understand then that marriage was racialized in the 19th century as not white. Polygamy was racialized as not white. Monogamy is the preserve of the white race. And the Supreme Court actually makes this point in its Reynolds decision in 1879 when it decides that polygamy is illegal. It says only African and Asian societies practice polygamy. White people shouldn't do so. Polygamy is for non-white races. Monogamy is the preserve of the white race. And all of a sudden, you have a group of people who look white in the Great Basin practicing polygamy. Their race is called into question through their behavior, in other words. Okay? So in a variety of ways, then, Mormons are denigrated as not white across the course of the 19th century. We'll focus in on this child here. So this political cartoon becomes the organizing tool for my book. Like in all families, not all children get equal treatment. The white children get one chapter. All six white children get one chapter. The uh, Native American child gets two chapters. The African American child gets four chapters. And the Asian child gets one chapter. But basically the book is a history of these fictionized children in Mormon Elderberry's family. Where, Where do they come from? It's not just a political cartoon that shows up in 1904 out of nowhere. 
So it's a history of where these children actually come from in the outside imagination. This is fictional, right? Outsiders are imagining their fear of race mixing and projecting it onto the Mormons. So as they do so, the suggestion is polygamy is not just destroying the traditional family, it's destroying the white race. So let me just kind of walk you through the evidence, and hopefully this will uh, make sense, and I'll lose a few of the skeptical looks. So um, three big ideas to keep in mind as we progress tonight. It's only in viewing Mormon whiteness as a contested variable, not an assumed fact, that a new paradigm emerges for understanding the Mormon racial story. So we have to set aside our skepticism, and I'll show you the evidence, but you also have to set aside sort of 21st century ideas about what race is and recover 19th century very fluid, illogical notions about race for this to make sense. So set aside your current understandings of what race is and try to recover what's taking place in the 19th century. Another important thing to keep in mind is that the development theory is operating in the 19th century mindset. So people believe that all societies go through three basic phases, from savagery to barbarism and from barbarism to civilization, and all societies progress along this trajectory. And as they progress along this trajectory, they leave behind savage and barbaric practices, such as polygamy, and adherence to despotic rule. And the Anglo-Saxons are seen as the prime example. They move across Europe to inhabit Britain and then cross the Atlantic, and we have a revolution where they throw off despotic rule and establish principles of freedom, and whiteness equals freedom, in other words. And now, out there in the Great Basin, you have presumably white people people who on the surface look white, ostensibly white people, who in fact are giving their free will over to the despots Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and practicing polygamy. And you have then the fear that presumably white people are deteriorating backwards instead of the natural progression, deteriorating backwards into barbarism and even into savagery. So. What's at stake, then, is not just some suspect religious group. American democracy is at stake. First Congress, 1790, how do you qualify to be a citizen of the United States? You have to be free and white. Democracy is the government of a white race, Senator John C. Calhoun says on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848. Democracy is the government of a white race. So if you're calling Mormon whiteness into question, you're suggesting, then, they're incapable of participating in a democratic society, incapable of self-rule, and darkening the white race and making it unfit for democracy. So that's really what's at stake. The other thing uh, to keep in mind, then, is that race is both something ascribed from without and aspired to from within. So what I try to pay attention to in the book is the way in which outsiders look in on the Mormons and suggest that they're not fully white. And then from the inside, Mormons attempting to claim whiteness for themselves across the course of the 19th century. And that's the struggle part of the story. So you have that dynamic taking place across the course of the 19th century. One way you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century, one significant way you do so, is in distance from blackness. 
And you see then Mormonism moving away from its own black converts towards whiteness with its priesthood and temple restrictions put in place firmly by 1908. Okay, so we'll sort of trace that over time. So let me just give you evidence then. Race as ascribed from the outside. So outsiders looking in. This is just one example. Dr. Roberts Bartholo, uh, a medical doctor who is sent west with Johnson's army during what we call the Utah War, stationed in Utah, and then as he leaves Utah in 1860, files a report with the United States Senate, argues that polygamy is giving rise to a new race. Once again, set aside 21st century notions of what race is and try to recover an illogical and fluid racial context. So this is uh, his report. The Mormon of all the human animals now walking this globe is the most curious in every relation. Mormonism is a great social blunder which seriously affected the physical stamina and mental health of its adherents. Polygamy was a central issue in Bartholo's mind. It created a preponderance of female births, he said. It created high infant mortality. And it produced a striking uniformity in facial expression, which included a albuminous and gelatinous types of constitution and physical conformation among the younger portion of Mormons. You can tell a Mormon when you see one. It forced Mormons to unduly interfere with the normal development of adolescence and was in some a violation of natural law, he says. Mormon men were constantly seeking young virgins, so that notwithstanding the preponderance of the female population, a large percentage of the younger men remained unmarried. He also said that the girls were married to the waiting patriarchs at the earliest manifestations of puberty, and when that was not soon enough, Mormons made use of the means to hasten the period. And he doesn't specify what means the Mormons discovered, but somehow they discovered means to hasten the period. The pro, uh, pro, progeny of the peculiar institution, he said, demonstrated its most deplorable effects in the genital weakness of the boys and young men. Polygamy created a sexual debility in the next generation of Mormon men, largely because their sexual desires are stimulated to an unnatural degree at a very early age, and as female virtue is wanting opportunities are not waiting for the gratification. He actually argues that polygamy is creating sterility in the next generation of Mormons, and if they weren't so successful at attracting outside converts from Europe, it would solve itself. They would die out because of the sterility, but they are bringing in new blood all the time, and therefore it's perpetuating the Mormon problem several generations down. So what all this is doing then is creating a degraded, deformed, degenerate Mormon body, okay, a new race emerging in the Great Basin. And he defines it this way, an expression of countenance and a style of feature which may be styled the Mormon expression and style, an expression compounded of sensuality, cunning, suspicion, and smirking self-conceit, the yellow sunken cadaver's visage, the greenish colored eyes, the lank yellowish, the lank angular person constituted an appearance so characteristic of the new race, the production of polygamy, as to distinguish them at a glance. The degradation of the mother follows that of the child, he says, and physical degeneracy is not a remote consequence of moral depravity. By the end of 1860, there's a conference at the New Orleans Academy of Sciences on the Mormon body. All the doctors who gather there except one buy Bartholo's argument and actually push it, for, push it forward. 
One doctor says it's only 30 years since Mormonism has been founded. We should empirically study Mormons for at least another 30 before we conclude a new race is coming out of the Great Basin. All the other medical doctors at this conference buy his argument and actually push it forward. Bartholomew goes on to give other lectures describing a degraded and degenerate Mormon body. It's picked up in a variety of medical journals and republished both nationally and internationally. And so you have a scientific community suggesting that a new race is emerging from the Great Basin. Then we look at race as aspired to from within. So that's the struggle part. So uh, you can pick up uh, some speeches in the 19th century from Mormon leaders who are talking about not a degraded, deformed body, but an angelic, celestial, and divine body. God commanded polygamy, and therefore the production of polygamy will be elevated, celestial, and divine. And sometimes uh, people have read some of these speeches and suggested, well, this is sort of anticipating the eugenics movement, which will play out in the 1920s. The real context is they are very much aware of the way that outsiders are defining them as degraded, and they are responding from the inside by suggesting the exact opposite is true. So Mary Jane Mount Tanner, uh, a plural wife in 1880, there are no healthier or better developed children than those born in polygamy. Plural marriage was a principle established by revelation for the regeneration of mankind, she says. George Q. Cannon, 1882, contended that the children of our system are brighter, stronger, and healthier in every way than those of the monogamic system. Other Mormons claim that plural marriage has produced a more perfect type of manhood, mentally and physically, and a fine, healthy race. So, once again, outside aspersions, okay, and then from the inside, an effort at claiming whiteness for Mormons, as outsiders are suggesting they are somehow uh, degraded or deformed. So that's sort of the struggle that we're talking about. So how does this uh, then impact the racial priesthood and temple restrictions? Let me just then walk you through the evidence as I see it. Uh, so Mormons created a very inclusive vision during the 1830s and 40s. And uh, these are the bits of evidence that we should think about. The Book of Mormon declared all are alike unto God, including black and white, published in 1830. If you understand the racial culture in 1830, that's a pretty dramatic statement that violates notions of how blacks and whites should be segregated and separated. Black people should be marginalized, not treated as equal. And the Book of Mormon is declaring something different. W.W. Phelps, uh, The Evening and the Morning Star, July 1833. So long as we have no special rule in the church as to people of color, let prudence guide. He publishes an article inviting free blacks to gather to Missouri. Free black Mormons to gather to Missouri. And he says, you need to be aware of the Missouri legal code and make sure you have legal papers substantiating your freed status if you're going to gather to Zion. Because if you don't, you're subject to whipping and expulsion from the state of Missouri. So Zion has been declared Jackson County. Black Mormons come and gather with us, but be aware of the legal code. And he quotes two sections of the Missouri legal code. In other words, black Latter-day Saints are a part of the Mormon movement. Okay? The first black Latter-day Saints to join is 1830 in Kirtland, Ohio. Establishing an open racial vision in the first... 20 years of Mormonism. 
Phelps again, all the families of the year should get redemption in Christ Jesus, regardless of whether they are descendants of Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And remember, religious people in the 19th century uh, divided up the races in the world according to uh, the, the Noah's sons after the flood, believing that Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the you know, Asians, Africans, and Europeans. And Phelps is just uh, talking about that same kind of context and saying that the gospel message is for all. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All people were one in Christ Jesus, whether it was in Africa, Asia, or Europe, he says again in another publication. Parley Pratt professed his intent to preach to all people, kindreds, tongues, and nations without any exception, and including India's and Afrique's sultry plains in a poetic expression of his global dream for Mormonism. At Nauvoo, the saints envisioned people from every land and from every nation, the polished European, the degraded Hottentot, and the shivering Laplander flowing to that city, and also expressed an open vision for who would be allowed into the temple at Nauvoo. The saints at Nauvoo anticipated persons of all languages, and of every tongue, and of every color, who shall with us worship the Lord of hosts in his holy temple and offer up their horizons in his sanctuary. Even Brigham Young, 1847, on record with an open racial attitude, favorably aware of one black priesthood holder in 1847. It is nothing to do with the blood, for of one blood has God made all flesh, he says to a black Mormon in winter quarters, who is complaining about the way he's being treated by other Latter-day Saints. And he's quoting, paraphrasing from Acts, which is a common verse used by those religious leaders in the 19th century outside of Mormonism who are fighting against the polygenesis theory. Some scientific thinkers believe there are multiple creation experiences to account for the different races. And religious thinkers in the 19th century push back and they tend to quote Acts. Joseph Smith does so and Brigham Young in 1847 does so. It's nothing to do with the blood, for of one blood has God made all flesh. Okay? We have one of the best elders, an African in Lowell, a barber, Brigham Young says, in 1847. He's on record as favorably aware of Q. Walker Lewis, who is a black Melchizedek priesthood holder in the Lowell, Massachusetts branch. Brigham Young is aware of him, favorably cites him as an example to William McCary, another black Mormon in winter quarters when McCary is saying that his skin color is causing problems. Let me give you an example. It's not a problem. We have a faithful black priesthood holder in Lowell, Massachusetts, Brigham Young says. And we don't care about the color, suggesting that Mormonism has a very open racial vision in its first couple of decades. That's the view from the inside. How do outsiders view Mormonism's racial vision? They're too accepting and they're too inclusive, outsiders suggest. I just pulled several quotes from newspapers and other accounts of how outsiders perceive this open racial vision in, uh, amongst the Mormons. Mormons accepted all nations and colors. Mormon elders maintained communion with the Indians and walked out with colored women. It was one accusation leveled against them, leveled against missionaries preaching in the South. Mormons welcomed all classes and characters into their society. These are not compliments. These are not celebrations of Mormon diversity. <laughs> Mormons are doing things what 
true Americans should not do. They're accepting Indians and they're accepting black people into their community. Okay? These are people that should be marginalized and segregated. They included aliens by birth and people from different parts of the world as members of God's earthly family. Mormons honored the natural equality of mankind without accepting the native Indians or the African race, was another accusation leveled against them. The Mormons opened an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and free blacks. They're welcoming everybody. Mormons promoted black ascendancy above the whites, was another complaint leveled against them. And I love this one. Edward Strutt Abdi was a British official on tour of the United States in the 1830s. He comes across the Book of Mormon, and he reads it. And he comes across the verse, All are alike unto God, including black and white. And this is his reaction when he reads that. The Book of Mormon ideal that all are alike unto God, including black and white, made it unlikely that the saints would remain unmolested in the state of Missouri, he predicted, and he proved to be prophetic. So he reads those verses and suggests this ideal vision of racial equality doesn't fit in this American context and will cause Mormons trouble. And he's actually correct. So these fears, then, of race mixing are perpetuated across the course of the 19th century in a variety of political cartoons. Uh, that notion that Mormons are facilitating race mixing continues to be perpetuated. This is Frank Leslie's Budget of Fun, 1872. Brigham Young is arrested on charges of lascivious conduct, hauled off to court, so it makes fodder for the popular press, and a New York magazine, Frank Lilly's Budget of Fun, imagines what the scene must have looked like when Brigham Young is hauled off to court. So they simply title the picture, Affecting Parting of Brigham Young from His Interesting Little Family. What's really interesting about the family is that it's an interracial family. The first wife reaching out to Brigham Young is a stereotypical black mammy from the plantation south. This is something that Southerners invent in their minds to defend themselves against charges that slavery is somehow brutal and cruel. Well, we have the plantation mammy in the plantation house, and she's always fat and happy and contented and well-fed, but also so fat that no Southern white would ever have sexual relations with her. It's their cover for their own horrible treatment of blacks, and the rape of black women that took place across the plantation south. But now you're projecting all of that into Brigham Young, and he's doing something no self-respecting Southern white would do. That is, not only have sex with the black mammy, but marry her and bring him into his family. And members of the family, uh, a couple of, uh, another wife is black in the family, a couple of children, yeah, a couple of children are black, and then even the white wives and some of the children, you'll notice the facial features. This was typical for cartoonists to depict Irish immigrants with simian or ape-like features in the 19th century, suggesting that Irish immigrants were somehow more ape-like than human, and projecting that kind of characteristic onto the Mormons in this situation giving rise to a degraded, deformed race, uh, more ape-like than human. So a degraded family uh, that Brigham Young is presiding over. The New York world, 
at the end of the uh, Civil War, you have four million freed blacks. The fear in the minds of the New York world in a straight-faced editorial, four million freed blacks. They're highly prone to sexuality and highly superstitious, prime converts to Mormonism. They will convert in mass to Mormonism, the New York world says, and all of a sudden you will have four million free blacks in the South combining with the Mormons in the West, and Mormons will control presidential politics in the United States. That's an editorial published in the New York world following the end of the Civil War. The ungovernable propensity of the Negroes to miscellaneous sexual indulgence and the powerful instinct of their race toward unreasoning superstition will make the four millions of freedmen the most promising field in the world for the propagation of the Mormon faith, the New York World says. John D. Sherwood's The Comic History of the United States, published in 1870, includes this picture, a Mormon family out for a walk. You have the enfeebled patriarch out front, the long string of wives behind, and then the endless string of children. Once again, it's not the number of wives and children, but it's the interracial nature of the family. You have, again, the stereotypical black mammy. You have an Asian wife. You have either a Native American or a Pacific Islander wife. Alfred Trumbull's The Mysteries of Mormonism, published in 1882, includes this illustration, a colored Mormon. You notice what's different in this one. The other ones have had the white male out front, and then one of the wives have been African, American, or uh, multiracial. In this situation... It's the male. It's the male that is black. This is after Reconstruction is over. You have Southern whites attending to, uh, attempting to reassert racial supremacy, white supremacy in the South. You can be lynched for looking at a white woman wrong in the South. And in fact, over 3,000 lynchings in the South for as little of, a, of an offense as that. It's the myth of the black beast rapist. And that fear is being projected onto the Mormons in this illustration. The colored Mormon, and look at the lascivious intent he has for the white woman. Okay, Mormonism, again, facilitating race mixing, making whiteness unfit for the blessings of democracy, destroying democracy in the United States. All the way through the turn of the century, then, you have Saul Bloom's publishing house uh, in New York, uh, this is a popular genre of music at the time period called coon songs. And in this particular song, is performed on Broadway, one of Saul Bloom's uh, hits for that year. Uh, it brings together stereotypes uh, about African Americans as well as about Mormons. And again, um, I think it's not a stretch of the imagination. Remember, Joseph F. Smith is playing out widely on the national stage not a stretch of the imagination to suggest that we really have a black Joseph F. Smith here. This is the chorus for the Mormon coon. I've got a big brunette and a blonde pet. I've got him short, fat, thin, and tall. I've got a Cuban gal and a Zulu pal. They come in bunches when I call. And that's not all. I've got, I've got him pretty too, got a homely few. I've got him black to octoroon. I can spare six or eight. Shall I ship him by freight? For I am the Mormon coon. Once again, Mormonism facilitating race mixing across the course of the 19th century. So what you have then taking place on the inside is a move towards whiteness. One way you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century is in distance from blackness. William Appleby 
is appointed by the leadership of Mormonism to survey the condition of the church on the East Coast as Brigham Young is leading saints into the Salt Lake Valley. So he takes, what, by his own account, a 2,000-mile tour of East Coast branches. And he goes to the Low Massachusetts branch, and he encounters Q. Walker Lewis, a black priesthood holder. William Appleby is a member of the church for seven years. And not only Q. Walker Lewis, but his son Enoch is in the Low Massachusetts branch, and his son Enoch has married Mary Webster, a white woman, also in the Low Massachusetts branch. An interracial marriage has been legalized in Massachusetts, so the marriage is legal in Massachusetts, but that doesn't mean socially acceptable. And this is the question, then, that William Appleby writes to Brigham Young as Brigham Young is leading saints into the Salt Lake Valley. Now, dear brother, I wish to know if this is the order of God or tolerated in this church, to, i.e., to ordain Negroes to the priesthood and allow amalgamation. Amalgamation is the pre-Civil War term for race mixing, borrowed from metallurgy, okay, the mixing of the races. If it is, I desire to know it as I have yet got to learn it. If there is a racial priesthood restriction in place in 1847, William Appleby, who's been a member for seven years, is certainly unaware of it. And he's inquiring of Brigham Young. And remember, Brigham Young, in March of 1847, is on record as favorably aware he knows about Q. Walker Lewis. He cited Q. Walker Lewis. This is not news that's going to catch him by surprise in terms of Q. Walker Lewis's ordination to the priesthood, not perhaps aware of Enoch marrying a white woman in the Low Massachusetts branch. So you have then the beginning of the transition. Um, Brigham Young and William Appleby will meet at winter quarters on the 3rd of December, 1847. Remember, he goes to the Salt Lake Valley, helps to get the settlement started, and then returns back to winter quarters, and that's when he will meet with William Appleby, get a report of his tour of the East Coast branches, and learn of Enoch's marriage to Mary Webster in the Low Massachusetts branch, and react very strongly against race mixing in that meeting. And then the first open announcement of a race-based priesthood restriction comes from Brigham Young on the 23rd of January, 1852, to the Utah Territorial Legislature. His most forceful articulation is on the 5th of February, 1852, to the legislature. And we now know that it's not unopposed, but in fact Orson Pratt, who is a member of the legislature and a Mormon apostle, is arguing against Brigham Young and that those speeches actually come out of a debate with Orson Pratt. As I was doing research for the book, I was trying to pinpoint these speeches, trying to see if there was a Pittman shorthand version of Brigham Young's speeches. Historians have sometimes misdated them and quoted Wilford Woodruff's truncated summation of Brigham Young's speeches. I wanted to know if there was actually a verbatim recording of his speeches and in the George Watt collection in the LDS Church archives, we have Brigham Young, George Watt, who was the recorder for the session of the legislature, did a uh, verbatim record of Brigham Young's speeches, but also, and he had actually transcribed those speeches himself, but also recorded a speech by Orson Pratt and Orson Spencer that had never been transcribed from 1852 until the present. And Lejean Carruth 
was asked to transcribe those speeches. I was allowed to use them in my research. And we now know that Orson Pratt was speaking out against the servant code that was being passed that legislative session. Uh, You have Mormons who had converted from the South who brought their black slaves with them to Utah Territory, and the legislature was meeting to decide what laws would govern slavery in Utah Territory. And it's the debate over that bill that takes place between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt, and Orson Pratt is speaking out against establishing a slave code in Utah Territory, and he rejects the notion of multi-generational curses. speaks out strongly against this. He moved um, that the servant code that was being debated be rejected in its entirety. He wanted the bill just simply rejected altogether. He argued that only God administered divine curses and that they were particular to a given time and place. They don't pass down from generation to generation. Even if God cursed Cain... It doesn't pass down to anyone else, coinciding with Joseph Smith's notion that we will be punished for our own sins, not for Adam's transgression. Why would supposed descendants of Cain be responsible for Cain's murder of Abel, in other words? Okay. Uh, shall we take then the innocent African that has committed no sin and damn him to slavery and bondage without receiving any authority from heaven to do so? He found the idea preposterous, and said it was enough to cause the angels in heaven to blush. <laughs> and then, um, after Brigham Young, on the 4th of, uh, 5th of February, gives his most dramatic speech articulating uh, the priesthood restriction, Orson Pratt will push back again against Brigham Young. You have two seemingly innocuous bills introduced into that legislative session, one for the incorporation of Cedar City and the other for the incorporation of Fillmore, as municipalities. Big deal. But the voting provisions for those two municipalities stipulate that white men over 21 can vote. And Orson Pratt argues that black men should be allowed to vote, and he votes against the Cedar City and uh, Fillmore municipal bills on the grounds that they don't allow black people to vote. He's well ahead of Brigham Young. He's well ahead of the legislature and the rest of the nation. This is 1852, okay? And he argues for black suffrage. Councillor Pratt opposed the bill on the ground that colored people were there prohibited from voting, the legislative minutes tell us. So we have then the black priesthood holders who watch uh, the space, that open articulation of priesthood and temples that we talked about in the first 20 years of Mormonism. We see that full space for full black participation diminished across the course of the 19th century. You have Elijah Abel, a black priesthood holder, was ordained an elder on the 3rd of March, 1836, sanctioned by Joseph Smith himself, ordained a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy on the 20th of December, 1836, by Zebedee Coltrane. He does baptisms for the dead in Nauvoo. He receives his washing and anointing in the Kirtland Temple, but remember that's as far as the temple experience is developed. He is in Cincinnati when the endowment ceremony is introduced in Nauvoo, so I don't know what would have happened had he been present. He then comes to the Great Basin. Later remembrances suggest he applies to Brigham Young for his endowment and to be sealed to his wife. I find no written record of that, but it could have happened verbally. There is a written record that he applies to John Taylor for his endowment and to be sealed to his wife in 1879. That does survive in the written record. And it prompts John Taylor to conduct an investigation. If 
A priesthood restriction is unambiguously in place even in 1879. Why would the leader of Mormonism need to have an investigation? They conduct an investigation into Elijah Abel's priesthood. Joseph F. Smith visits Elijah Abel personally. Elijah Abel produces his certificates. Joseph F. Smith comes back to the meeting, reports that he saw the certificates, and Abel claims that his priesthood was sanctioned by Joseph Smith himself. They allow his priesthood to stand. They don't allow him admittance into the temple and to be sealed to his wife. He goes on a third mission for the church. He comes back and dies three weeks later. And this is his obituary published in the Deseret News. I don't know who wrote it, but whoever wrote it seems to be aware of the diminishing space for full black participation. It's not a typical eulogy. It's not a typical obituary. It's more a substantiation of Elijah Abel as a black priesthood holder. It simply just gives the dates of his ordinations. And then he was subsequently ordained to 70 as appeared by certificate dated 4th of April, 1841. He labored successfully in Canada and also performed a mission in the United States from which he returned about two weeks ago. He died in full faith of the gospel. But by this point, race trumped righteousness. Full faith was not enough. And... Elijah Abel, the lone surviving priesthood holder, was used to justify then the beginning of temple restrictions. And the day that he died, Jane Manning James, another black pioneer, starts her application for her endowments and is consistently told no. So, 1907 then, the first presidency will put uh, a one-drop rule in place. Coinciding with then the increasingly segregated society in America. Remember, the Supreme Court puts its stamp of approval on segregation in 1896. You have a variety of states who start moving towards one-drop laws. The state of Virginia adopts a one-drop law, meaning how do we define who is black and white legally? Well, if you have even one black ancestor, no matter how remote a degree, it's called a one-drop rule, one drop of black blood, no matter how remote the black ancestor, you could have a hundred white ancestors, one black ancestor, and you are legally defined as black in the state of Virginia. And the LDS leadership moves the same direction, 1907, adopting a one-drop rule. The descendants of Ham may receive baptism and confirmation, but no one known to have in his veins Negro blood. It matters not how remote a degree. Okay, that's the one-drop clause can either have the priesthood in any degree or the blessings of the temple of God, no matter how otherwise worthy he may be. Once again, worthiness, righteousness don't matter. Race trumps righteousness as it comes to be applied. And so what we have then, I argue, is uh, the restriction is solidified in 1908. What you have to do is you have to erase from collective Mormon memory the black priesthood holders and Joseph S. Smith finally completes that process in 1908 when he misremembers Elijah Abel's priesthood. So you can see Joseph F. Smith's own trajectory over time. 1879, he defended Abel's priesthood in that investigation. 1895, they have another meeting where he again defends Abel's priesthood and says that Abel was ordained to the priesthood at Kirtland under the direction of the prophet Joseph Smith. Then 1904, you start to see the slippage in the other direction. Elijah Abel's now dead. Far removed, distant memories. 1904, he called Abel's ordination a mistake that was never 
corrected, a mistake that was never corrected. 1908, they have a meeting because you have the mission president in South Africa sends a letter. We just baptized a Zulu chief. He wants to take the gospel to the rest of his tribe. What do we do? They have a meeting, and once again, well, I remember Elijah Abel. I remember Jane Manning's James. They were denied these blessings. We need to continue the same policy. This time, Joseph F. Smith says that Abel's priesthood ordination was declared null and void by the prophet himself. So you see then the transition over time in those four different memories. Null and void by the prophet himself. So all of a sudden then, the priesthood restriction was always in place. It was there from the beginning. We can't do anything about it, and it will take a revelation to get rid of it. Did you say null and void by the prophet Joseph Smith himself? Correct. So that's then the new memory moving forward. Priesthood has always been white. Temples have always been white. And that becomes the new memory moving forward from 1908. And the notion is God put it in place. Man can do nothing about it. And it will take a revelation to get rid of it. And in fact, that happens 70 years later. Didn't Zebedee Colton also speak later against the ordination that he performed? Right. Yes. Yeah. And we can, we can deal with that um, in, the, in the Q&A. But, but you're absolutely right. That takes place in 1879. And Joseph, Joseph F. Smith at that point says, no, you're wrong, Zebedee Coltrane. Yeah. Uh, we'll just wrap it up then and we can open it up for questions. So the basic arc of the book then is Mormons denigrated as not white enough in the 19th century. So they move towards whiteness. They are so successful at claiming whiteness for themselves that by the 21st century denigrated as too white. When Romney sought the Republican nomination in 2008, one political blogger uh, made fun of the Romney Christmas card, uh, photoshopped an African-American man into the Romney family, (laughs) and then said, this is the Romney Christmas card, represents the melting pot that is Utah. Who do you think is the non-Romney or nominee in this photo? Right, Mormons are too white. Um, And then remember in 2012, In the New York Times, Lee Siegel published an editorial calling Romney the whitest white man to run for president in recent memory. So Mormons go from not white enough in the 19th century to too white by the 21st century. Effort to claim whiteness for themselves in the 19th century and by the 21st century, an effort to claim a more racially and internationally diverse identity for themselves witnessed the I'm a Mormon media campaign. Before she ran for Congress... Mia Love, from Utah, was one of the vignettes featured in the I'm a Mormon media campaign with her white husband and interracial children featured. A dramatic transformation from the 19th century when Brigham Young learns of Enoch Lewis's marriage, a black man, to marry Matilda's, a white woman in the low Massachusetts branch, to this becoming the face of Mormonism in the 21st century. That's the basic trajectory and arc of the book, from not white enough to too white, and an effort to claim whiteness for themselves in the 19th century to an effort to claim a more racially diverse and internationally diverse identity in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Yeah, question. Um, so, coming up through Aaronic Priesthood, you know, we're always taught 
the young men wear white shirts and ties. You know, our, our temple clothing is white. Temples themselves are white. Do you know if, if that's related at all to this racial kind of influence, or is that something separate, you think? Well, you know, I think it, it all plays in, right? So um, Winthrop Jordan's book is called White Over Black. He actually looks at what blackness meant when Europeans first encountered Africa and Africans, and it's loaded with all kinds of negative connotations, right? Dirty, foul, devilish. That's sort of the cultural baggage in the 15th century, 1400s, when Europeans encounter Africans, right? And whiteness equals purity. Uh, And we see Joseph Smith himself, right, in the Book of Mormon. We know that 1840, when he's going through the Book of Mormon passages, he changes, remember, the language from white and delightsome to pure and delightsome. So white being a synonym for pure, right? We don't figure that out until the 1981 edition of the scriptures. um, And when we verify that Joseph Smith actually had made the change himself, the 81 edition of the scriptures includes pure and delightsome, not white and delightsome, right? So it, it is a factor, right? It sort of plays into sort of just the baggage that white or black represent in people's minds. Yeah. Are yeah. Orson Pratt's narratives available now? Uh, not yet. The Church History Department is allowing myself and LaJean Carruth, who transcribed them, and Christopher Rich, uh, a legal scholar, to publish a documentary history of them. And so we're going to contextualize what we believe is taking place in the 52 legislative session, uh, the bills that are being debated, set them in timeline, and also allowing us then to publish uh, the Pittman shorthand version of Brigham Young's speeches, the Pittman shorthand version of Orson Pratt and Orson Spencer's uh, speeches. So they will be uh, available once we're done with the editing and the contextualizing, and that will be published as uh, a documentary history. Uh, you mentioned the uh, interracial couple uh, in Massachusetts and Brigham Young State. For those of us that are not familiar with that story, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, Kiwaka Lewis is a, uh, a black man. Uh, he goes from different religion to different religion. He's a barber in Massachusetts. He's also a member of the Black uh, Masonic Lodge in Massachusetts. Uh, a respectable uh, black man in Massachusetts society uh, who uh, apparently hears the Mormon message and converts. Uh, Evidence suggests that it's William Smith, who was an apostle at the time, Joseph and Hiram's younger brother, who ordains him to the priesthood. Uh, And then his son, Enoch, also converts. The low Massachusetts branch includes young women from... The, the woolen the, the mills the textile mills that are operating in Lowell and apparently Enoch um, and Mary Webster strike up a romance and they get married. Uh, Q. Walker Lewis's wife is from an interracial relationship, so obviously that family doesn't have a problem with an interracial relationship, and the marriage takes place in the Massachusetts branch, and no one seems to care or sort of notice until. William Appleby comes in, and he is certainly offended by it. So, once again, the, the gospel net is being cast widely, right? So, you have a variety of people who are being drawn into this gospel net. Slaveholders, they're black slaves, right? This is how universal the message is. You're all welcome. Abolitionists, anti-abolitionists. Those who are okay with amalgamation, 
those who don't like amalgamation. These are all the political ideas floating around of their day, and they're all being drawn into the gospel net. But eventually then, we will establish white over black and free over bounds in that 52 legislative session. But um, it's sort of that low Massachusetts branch is indicative of the various peoples being drawn into the gospel message. Yes, so they had a child. So Enoch and, and, um, and Mary had a child, and William Appleby is, is enormously offended by this, right? Because the interracial mixing has produced then a degraded offspring. Hey, I actually did read the book and most of the footnotes, and I understand the premise is that this was another reason to hate Mormons, is they're not white. And um, I know the top three were polygamy and that God spoke to prophets and they might vote as a voting law. Are you saying that this idea that they're of Mormons not white is as powerful as those top three reasons to hate Mormons, or is this more of a fringe reason to hate Mormons. Yeah, you know, um, what, how I see it operating is as justification for discriminatory policies against Mormons. How do you justify an extermination order against people who look like you in a 19th century context? Well, you suggest that they, in fact, aren't like you. They're more red than they are white, or they're more black than they are white, and this is appropriate behavior against those kind of marginalized groups, and so therefore if Mormons are more like them, Extermination is perfectly okay. So I see it operating as a means of justifying discriminatory behaviors. Dehumanizing. Dehumanizing, absolutely. Dehumanizing and justifying, uh, you know, being expelled from the United States altogether. Uh, two quick ones. One is, I'm taking the, the title of your book was taking the display off of whiteness of a different color from a few years earlier. That's correct. And it, it developed a lot of these things. I ran into that. I read it before yours came out, so it gave me a really good backdrop for what was happening here. I, I recommend if anybody signed was on the rest. But um, I, I've, I've been involved in the subject for a long time since high school, and I've only found two black LDS that thought the priest restriction was right, and one of them was since repent. Um, <laughs> Uh, the rest of them said, God's taken from it anyway, leave it alone, it'll be solved later. Branch President Watts, he said, if, 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 the church, if, if the church lied, God will take care of it, things like that. But um, the last Sunday of July, I was up at the L.A. Temple's Visitor Center, they had a, a presentation about black pioneers. In the Q&A afterwards, black members were asking, well, what about this in the Book of Mormon, where people were created black skin so they would be loathsome? And that's in scripture. The black skin is loathsome. What do we do with this? Yeah. I, um, so on the comments about um, blackness in, in the Book of Mormon, uh, I've been surprised then, especially after the race and the priesthood essay came out, um, with the number of Latter-day Saints who mistakenly believed that those verses in the Book of Mormon were applied to African Americans. They never were. It says black skin is loathsome. Maybe not to that race, but black skin is low. Right, but so so understand the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that Mormons understood always, Mormon leadership understood the Book of Mormon to be describing Native American peoples. What you're pointing to is the color is not right, and that's the interesting irony that no one attempted to reconcile, right, is that the Book of Mormon says skin of blackness, and you have Brigham Young, you have Joseph Smith, you have other LDS leaders talking about our red brethren, right? Talking about Native Americans as our red brethren. This color is not 
correct is the interesting irony there. Never were those verses used to justify a priesthood or temple restriction against black people. It was only meant, uh, understood as uh, a curse against Native Americans, and it was a cultural curse. Remember, the narrative itself suggests that it can be overcome because sometimes the Lamanites are more righteous than the Nephites. And 19th century Latter-day Saints see it as their mission to redeem fallen descendants of ancient Israel who are the Lamanites. Right? They're perfectly redeemable and they want to bring them along with them towards whiteness. They want to help them become white and delights them by intermarrying amongst them. At the same time, they're trying to leave African Americans behind. So there is considerable confusion. I've heard stories where you know black potential converts are asking missionaries, well, where did this restriction come from? And they point to the Book of Mormon verse. <laughs> so that's how far we are removed from even the nature of where the uh, Brigham Young's justification for it. He never drew upon the Book of Mormon. His only rationale consistently across the course of his life was the Bible. Cain killed Abel. And therefore, all of Abel's descendants will have to wait, or all of Cain's descendants, all of Cain's supposed descendants, are going to have to wait until all of Abel's descendants receive the priesthood. It's being basically, it says black skin is mm-hmm. Sure. Forget about priest and everything else. Black person picks that up and says, this scripture says, I'm loathsome. Right. No, they absolutely. They don't need to know anything else. Right. No, I, I totally get your point. Um, there are internally consistent ways of reading those verses, not literally, right? Um, and Dryas Gray and, and Marvin Perkins' Blacks in the Scriptures, I think, does a good job of sort of walking through that. Uh, if you haven't seen those, uh, it's a potential way to kind of think through that. And the, the footnotes can kind of lead you through that. But I'm not denying your point, absolutely. And it also has then that black and white are alike unto God, Right. So you have that um, tension within the same book of scripture. Is there another? Scriptures aren't correlated, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the back. So where do you think the church would be? I mean, right now we're 14, 15 million, whatever it is. If if the church had not gone through this transition, where would the church be right now? For good or better or worse or whatever, like what would church look like right now if it hadn't gone through this? Would it have just fizzled out because there was so much animosity towards the church? Or was there some rationale? Was the thought we have to do this, otherwise we're going to die out? Or Yeah, sure. Um, You know, uh, and the dots are never connected that explicitly, right? So what I see is this bigger context. And then I see Mormons moving towards whiteness away from blackness across the course of the 19th century in fits and starts and never sort of a deliberate, um, they're saying this about us, therefore we're moving this way. Um, Never that clear, right? It's just sort of like these moments in time where they're making these decisions um, away from blackness towards whiteness. Uh, You know, where would the church be? Um, That's the luxury of being a historian. My mind is buried in the past. And uh, it's hard enough to figure out the past, let alone predict the future. Um, you know, I've heard people suggest, well, you know, this sort of saves the church from, um, from outside scorn, right? Polygamy? <laughs> right. Um, you know, so 1852, uh, you know, February, Brigham Young is um, openly articulating a priesthood restriction. 
the fall of that year, they openly announced, yes, we are practicing polygamy, and that brings on scorn from the nation, right? If you're really concerned about avoiding scorn from the outside, you don't practice polygamy. If that's sort of, and, and then there's sort of, you know, obviously the notion that, you know, Mormonism is the truth, right, as Mormons like to uh, describe it, and it's going to withstand anything, right? It's always going to be here. So allowing black people full participation is somehow going to bring an end to it. You know, um, I don't buy the argument. I just see sort of human beings kind of uh, making human decisions um, in fits and starts across the course of the 19th century. Where would it be? Well, it certainly wouldn't be trying to deal with its um, troubled racial past in the 21st century um, is, is one way to think about it, at least, and probably a much more global reach much sooner than after 1978. And they still want to believe the 1,800 people were so righteous, you know, that, that they didn't stray away from God. Like the devil strayed you away from God's will, and they don't want to believe that. No, you're right. Um, it calls into question sort of notions of prophetic fallibility, right? Um, so that's where it takes people. Um, and so these are really difficult questions that people have to work through. And um, I think it leads them to that kind of position that you're articulating. In the back? Are you familiar with Fair Mormon, the blog? Yes. Uh -huh. And, and they, they did quite a bit of research on this issue and came to the conclusion that uh, restricting blacks from the priesthood was never church policy. Now, I did not read all of the research that they did, but they went through many, many... Uh, of the prophets sayings about it and they say it was never church policy what do you say? No, they say it was never church doctrine yeah, so um, there, there's the doctrine versus policy kind of idea, right? And, and David O. McKay comes to the conclusion in the, in the 1950s McKay comes to the conclusion that it was a policy, not a doctrine right? Certainly taught and preached as a doctrine in the 19th century. There's really no way to get around that. Uh, in the 20th well, century. Right. Not disagreeing with that either. Um, suggesting just that, you know, even in its foundation, uh, preached and taught as a doctrine, right, the policy is black people cannot hold a priesthood. The doctrine that supports that policy is Cain killed Abel. Uh, and then you have a variety of other justifications that grow up around that, but Brigham Young never strays from that justification for, and that's taught as a doctrine. Um, and the 20th century, taught as a doctrine, and then you have Fensitter in the War in Heaven, Less Valiant in the War in Heaven, uh, other justifications used. Um, then they start to appeal to the Book of Abraham, right? Joseph Smith never appeals to the Book of Abraham. Brigham Young never appeals to the Book of Abraham. It's always Cain killed Abel. That's the only reason Brigham Young ever gives, and he never deviates from that. And he actually rejects the notion of neutral in the war in heaven in a meeting at the School of the Prophets in 1869. 
right? But all of those other justifications uh, grow up to attempts to justify uh, what it was. McKay says, well, um, by the 1950s, uh, it's a policy, not a doctrine, but certainly taught and believed and practiced as a doctrine. There's really no way to get around that. I don't call it a political move in, in the book. Um, like I said, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, the open articulation comes out of a territorial legislative debate. So if you want to talk about it um, politically that way, you know, I would go along with that. That's the first open articulation by a Mormon prophet president is in the context of uh, debates over laws being passed by the legislative session. But once again, you know, if um, certainly there is no evidence of black priesthood holders being ordained after 1852, but if it's unambiguously in place by 1879, right, why does John Taylor, as leader of Mormonism, have to conduct an investigation? And then the letters continue to arrive between 1879 and 1908. Uh, what about, uh, we have missionaries in South Carolina who ordained uh, two black converts. What do we do about this? Um, my uh, future son-in-law uh, purportedly has black blood in his ancestors. Does that mean he won't be able to get married to my daughter in the temple? And if they have children, will my grandchildren? Mm -hmm. These are the kind of questions that are coming in that they're dealing with. And right, they start, you know, remembering back. Well, I think Brigham Young said this, or maybe it was Joseph Smith, right? And the memory starts to slip. So I never really see sort of these deliberate kind of things. It's just sort of this natural progression over time that takes on a life of its own. To the point that I argue, 1908 is the final brick when you erase from collective Mormon memory the black priesthood holders that complicate this notion of whiteness, and it was in place from the beginning. So never really deliberate as a political move per se, um, and I certainly don't characterize it that way. Well, then you conclude, I mean, the current leaders say that we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know the reason for it. And is that your conclusion? No, 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 no. I have a whole book about the reasons for it. Then <laughs> why do our current leaders don't know? Well, um, so the race in the priesthood essay does not contain the languages we don't know. And they haven't read the book yeah. yet. I didn't say they were wrong either. <laughs> no. Um, so you got to read it. You can read it both ways. Sure, but... but they have specifically said we don't know the reason. So the new... Um, the, the language of the new introduction to Official Declaration 2 does include the we don't know. I don't agree with it. Okay. So you're saying that they're lying? Or that you really aren't as smart as the... Uh, no, saying that, saying that I don't uh, agree doesn't mean that I'm saying they're lying. Question over here? Yeah, another question. Um, I was reading a 1907 conference report, and um, uh, one of the uh, members of the Quorum of Twelve was talking about the Philippines, you know, recent uh, independence from Spain, Spanish. And he referred to as our little brown brothers. Okay. Now, that would never, that phrase would never occur over the pulpit today, of course, because it's so my question is, as, as a historian, you know, and my background's history too, uh, we, we, do, we can't do transference of 21st century values into the, the thinking then, because the thinking was different. Now, this is not a justification, not, not at all, not at all. But we, we get appalled, like, oh, how could this be that thing? Because we we live in standards today where it's just appalling right. that kind of thing. Sure. But my question to you is, um, wasn't that 
reflective? Again, I'm not justifying, but isn't that reflective of the times of that? I mean, in in 19th century America, there was separation of the races. Oh, absolutely. Generally, yeah. not just in Mormonism. Right. So, so that's that's the point of the first part of the presentation, right? Is that Mormonism begins with this open racial vision, and how do outsiders view that, right? Mormons are violating the standards of what it means to be an American, right? They're accepting the people that should be segregated, people that American society suggests should be segregated and denigrated and marginalized. The Indian Removal Act is playing out at the same time, right, 1830, same time that Mormons, uh, Mormonism is being founded. Uh, so these are people that should be removed and segregated. And in the red, white, and Mormon chapters, you actually have then... Uh, the use of the same language of Indian hating applied to Mormons, right? And the actual proposal uh, in Nauvoo in 1845 after Joseph Smith is killed, how do we solve the Mormon problem? One local official proposes creating a 24-square-mile Mormon reservation patterned after Indian reservations, right? Um, so you appropriate the language of Indian hating. You also appropriate the Indian solution for the Mormon problem. Uh, and it plays out across the course of the 19th century. So you're absolutely right. That's the cultural context of the time. And I try to situate then what's taking place within Mormonism within that bigger picture. And uh, I, I certainly think, for me at least, it makes more sense. Yeah. It almost makes it more sad because they were so open. And it's so interesting to me how you shared that the the man who applied to receive his endowments, and they said no, and he still went on a mission and served the church. That's just such a you know strong statement of his belief. Right. Um, and then my question was, um, is there any evidence of maybe some of those presumably wealthier people who maybe had come from the south of lobbying the prophet to, or of people wanting those restrictions to be put in place? There were so many, you mentioned all the varying points of view of everyone who was joining the church, but would he have maybe been influenced by those, like other, like maybe stronger or more influential members of the church doing something like that? There's no evidence that the slaveholders are actually lobbying, right, the legislature when that's taking place. Or lobbying uh, the prophet. I lobbying the prophet, yeah. even. Um, really, uh, you know, Brigham Young actually is striking a middle ground in that 52 legislative session. Um, uh, speaks out strongly against the shadow slavery as practiced in the South but also speaks out against the abolitionists. And abolitionists were seen as amalgamationists in disguise. There are anti-abolitionist riots that permeate the North in the 1830s, right? You're, if you want to free blacks, what you really want is you're inviting blacks to move amongst you and intermarry with you and darken the white race, and democracy is at stake. That's the argument, right? So Brigham Young strikes the middle ground. We actually believe that what the legislature passes is a form of gradual emancipation uh, only the current generation. He wants to honor, uh, you know, the labor obligations that black people represent to their masters. And so the current generation will be held in slavery, but the next generation will not. And that's a typical form of gradual emancipation passed by northern states that we call free states. Um, we'll lay all that out in, in, in the, the new book where we edit the documentary history. So he really is kind of striking the middle ground. All provisions of the code that the legislature passes are aimed at the masters and what the masters can't do 
not at the black slaves. Um, they are what they can, what they have to do and what they um, can't do. So they have to provide an education. In the South, you can't educate your slaves. The code that the territorial legislature passes in 1852 stipulates that they have to provide an education to their slaves. They have to provide recreation to their slaves, adequate food and clothing. They can't um, unduly punish them. Uh, slaves have to agree to come to the territory of their own free will. Right? How that plays out in practice is anyone's guess. But nonetheless, um, it really is a, a servant code very different from the uh, uh, shadow slavery that's practiced in the South, but not emancipation either. Orson Pratt opposed the servant code. Yeah, he wanted it absolutely just rejected. What was the vote? Well, the vote was uh, obviously for it. Um, was it they, unanimous? Well, it, the, the legislative minutes don't record the vote, unfortunately. So, but presumably, um, yes, but we know that Pratt speaks out against it. Uh, they don't record the vote. I mean, most of the bills are passed unanimously in the legislature. I mean, there's this value placed on unity, right? But we know that Pratt is speaking out against it. Uh, but it's modified, right? There are modifications. So we have the first version, and then we have the version that actually passes. And that really solidifies the notion that it's a form of gradual emancipation because the language of it passing to the next generation is removed before it actually passes. And so it's seen as only this current generation will be enslaved. Their children will not be enslaved. Obviously, it doesn't even have to play out that way. Congress, National Congress, outlawed slavery in the territory in 1862, right? But you have a form of unfree labor practiced, practiced in Utah territory from 52 to 62, and a small number of slaves, around 100, right? Um, of black people, I should say. Some slaves and some freed blacks. Some actually Mormons. Some have converted, right? Um, all of that sort of just mixed in this milieu. Uh, but the vote tally itself is not recorded for the bill, but it passes. And Brigham Young signs it into law. I really found this to be a fascinating presentation, Paul, and I. <laughs> I'm sure that if uh, you have additional questions that Paul will hang around and you can ask him. I think it's indicative of the interest of this topic that we have so many questions, and I, I only wish that there were more church members here because I agree that there still are members of the church who don't understand the historical background, and they need to if they're going to really understand what the gospel is about. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.